The Apostle Paul told the church of Corinth, he said this, For the word of the cross, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For the word of the cross is folly, foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We're taking a break from the study of Acts and we are studying uh, the theme called the atonement. We thought it would be good for us as we continue uh, week after week as we head toward the Passion Week, the resurrection of Jesus, as we celebrate on the 20th of April, although we celebrate it every Sunday, but that day particularly, uh, uh, corporately, millions, if not billions of Christians around the world will celebrate the fact that death and, and the grave could not keep Jesus, could not contain Jesus. Just, that he's, just as he said after three days, by his own authority, rose from the dead, he conquered sin, he conquered death, and he overcame hell. We love to tell that story here. Reminds me of Catherine Henke, who wrote a famous hymn, "'Tis pleasant to repeat what seems each time I tell it more wonderfully sweet. I love to tell the story, for some have never heard the message of salvation from God's own holy word." So last week, we started the series. It's a five-part series on the atonement. So if you have your Bibles, great. Turn to Isaiah 53. We'll be there a little bit. Uh, There are other verses of Scripture, but turn to Isaiah 53. If you do not have a Bible with you, we have some in the back by the sound booth. Um, If you don't have one in home, please take it home with you. It's our gift to you, Isaiah 53. Let me bring everybody up to speed just for a couple of minutes. Number one, we learned last week, we started this series, that in Genesis 1 through 3, we saw that God created us in the Imago Dei, which is Latin for the image and likeness of God. Not because he was lonely or empty, but in his fullness and in his love, he created us. He revealed himself in Genesis as a personal being. The eternal, the self-sustaining, unchanging, self-existent one. Psalm 90 says, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you have formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And although we can say a lot about the Imago Dei being created in the image and likeness of God, what we know is that the personal God, a personal God created personal beings to have relationship, to, to have the ability to know him, to have the ability to love him, the ability to worship him, to, the ability to, to have a relationship with him. And that's very important. One of the terms we used last week for relationship is the word covenant. God is a God, is a, is a, 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 makes covenants in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the New Testament covenant, and his love flows out of the covenant. It's about relationships. Some of his covenants are conditional. Some of his covenants are unconditional. We know Noah. God made a covenant with Noah, which was unconditional, that he would never destroy the earth by water again. But he also made conditional covenants like Adam. Adam was given life, purpose, and meaning, and most importantly, had a sweet, intimate communion, relationship with his creator. He was content. He was fulfilled. He was satisfied in God. But God said, obey me. You'll have life. If you disobey me and you sin, there'll be death. We know the story. Adam disobeyed and death entered into the world. He was sinned. He sinned and he was judged accordingly. God also made another covenant of works with Israel. 
When God called and redeemed Israel out of bondage, when he delivered them from slavery in Egypt, you'd see that in the book of Exodus, he brings them into the land that he promised that he would give to them through the covenant with Abraham, that unconditional covenant with Abraham. He gave Moses the law by which to govern themselves as they entered the land in order for them to have a relationship with this redeemer, this God, this creator. And I just want to make note that grace came before the law. Redemption came before the law. God loved them, redeemed them, delivers them, and then gives them the law. Just chew on that for a little while for those of you uh, who, who love the law. The law was given to reveal God's glory. The law was given so that Israel would see how sinful they are. So in God's law, by his grace, he gives them prescribed way to deal with their sin. Their sins separated them from God, and God gives them a prescribed way in the book of Leviticus on how to deal with their sin. It's called atonement. We said last week that atonement is an Anglo-Saxon word. You could pull it apart. You could see what it means. At one meant to take two that was separated and to make them at one again, to have harmony, to be reconciled again, to, be, to have reconciliation. So sin separates us from God. Therefore, what's needed is a way to, to bring back that broken relationship because of our sin back into a right relationship with God. That's atonement. Wayne Grudem in a systematic book says this. He defines the atonement as the work Christ did in his life and death to earn our salvation. John Stott says the meaning of the atonement is not to be found in our penitence, evoked by the sight of Calvary, but rather in what God did when in Christ on the cross, he took our place and bore our sin. So each week, we're taking a different view, a different motif on what is the atonement. Last week, we said Jesus is our sacrifice. I know that's what you're about to say. Jesus is our sacrifice. We saw how the Old Testament animal sacrifice that were offered in the temple didn't really take away sin. Did not really reconcile us to God, but that Jesus, the prophesied one, is the greater and the better sacrifice because in his incarnation, the fact that he did become human, he identified with us yet without sin and therefore becomes the perfect sacrifice for sin and therefore he alone, the God-man, fully God, fully man, can reconcile us to God. Well, this week we're going to talk about Jesus, our substitute. Jesus, our substitute. First of all, let me define substitute. So you can, as I read our, our scripture, I want you to have this fresh in your minds. Some people call Jesus' substitute or the substitutionary work of Christ on the cross the vicarious substitute or the vicarious atonement. They say that because the word vicar, uh, which is generally denotes a, a substitute, is one who takes the place of another, acting or suffering in his stead. When we speak of the sacrifice of Christ as vicarious, we mean that Christ died in our place for our sin as a substitute. He suffered the punishment due to us and in our place met all the requirements of the law and divine justice was accepted through the full payment of his substitutionary work as full payment for our sins. Okay, so he dies in our place. He gets what we get. He gets what we should get. And then we get who he is, which is righteous. And we're going to talk about that next week, I believe, or the week after. This an exchange that goes on. But he dies as a substitute in our place. So that's what we're going to look at today. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah the prophet, around the middle of your Bible. 
Isaiah chapter 53. This whole psalm, this whole verse, this whole chapter, I should say, is about the work of Christ written, I think, seven to 800 years before Jesus came. And if you read it, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Go home and read that. Uh, Isaiah 53 should be open in your Bibles, on your table, and you should be reading that um, the next few weeks as we approach Easter because this is the work of the suffering servant that Jesus did for us on the cross, written 700 years with pinpoint uh, precision. Isaiah 53, I'm just going to read a couple verses, 4 through 6. Surely he, Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, our crookedness, our sins, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, verse 6, chapter 53 of Isaiah, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Down to verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, as the guilt offering, he shall see his offering, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of the soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted, accounted righteous, and shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with the transgressors. Remember, he died between two thieves, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressions. Substitutionary atonement. Dying in our place. So that's what we're going to look at. Jesus, our substitute. We're going to see that under three headings this morning. One, man's sinful substitution. Secondly, Israel's sacrificial substitution. A lot of our series is going to start in the Old Testament because it points a picture, it foreshadows the coming of Christ. And third, God's self-substitution. Yeah, substitute, substitution. Okay, that's where we're going. Let me see if I have it up there. Okay, good. Let me say this before we begin. I'll look at our first point. I want everybody to see if you can, see, see if you can walk with me. Every single person here, we talked a little bit when we were through Genesis about this. But everyone here right now in this room that can hear my voice, unless you're sleeping. If you are, wake the person up next to you. You sleep later. Every one of you and I included has a worldview. How you perceive, how you interpret the world. An individual worldview will ask questions like, who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? How should I live my life? What behaviors should I exhibit? How do I know what's right and how do I know what is wrong? Is there a God? Does he exist? What is my response to him? If you come here this morning and you interpret those questions through your own grid through the lenses of your own experience, through the lenses of your own rationale, 
I want to ask you just for the moment to put that aside. I want to ask you to try to open up and think and walk with me that maybe there is something or someone greater than you. You see, the only way you and I could know God, because we're talking about person, we're talking about a personal God, we're talking about a relationship with God. The only way you and I could know about, could know God is by his self-revelation in his word. Any other means, really, it's just you. The scriptures were given to us because we can't know him, we can't figure out who God is unless God reveals himself to us. God cannot be understood through your imagination your philosophical understanding, or even human reasoning, because at the end of the day, the only person you really have is you. If you make up your own mind, it'll only be you. The person you are asking to answer these questions really fits in your own desires, and, and it's only you. And the only way we could know anybody, the only way you could know me closer is if I reveal myself to you and it's the same thing with God the scriptures are not speculation but revelation revelation means the unveiling the removal of the veil the disclosure of what was previously unknown and the scriptures give us from God's perspective who he is and what are the answers to those questions we get to see his character we can we can see how he wants us to relate to him how he wants us to Come to him. Have fellowship. Have a relationship with him. It's not on our terms. It's something that he has revealed himself to us. And here's the problem. Since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, we've all been substituting the real God for other gods. We talked about that last week as well. We called it idolatry. I want to flesh that out a little bit. When our first parents chose to disobey God and rebelled against him, at that moment they chose to substitute themselves for God in an effort to become their own little gods, their own little saviors, rather than run to God to seek mercy and grace, they ran away from God trying to hide themselves and the sin and the shame that came upon them. Like many of us, we try to be our own gods and saviors. This is because each of us, every one of us has sinned, ran and replaced God with other things. We try to fill the emptiness, we try to fill the void in our lives with other things. The, 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 the idea of why am I here? What is the purpose? We try to find other ways to fill that. And we think we're smarter than God. And therefore we, re- we rebel against him. We think we know better. And we make up our own little minds with our own little kingdoms. Remember last week we said sin is not just breaking the moral commands of God. Don't steal. Don't, don't commit adultery. Uh, don't have false witness. It's Not just those things. Sin is making good things into ultimate things. Sin is also making good things into ultimate things. It's breaking the first commandment, have no other God before me. At the very heart of everyone here is a savior, is a justifier. Ways in which we look outside ourselves to find meaning in life. Every person, every culture has a definition on what it means to matter, to be significant, and to be successful. In ancient uh, familial cultures, it was about the family. It was about your name. It was about how many children you have. We saw that when we studied Genesis with Sarah and Rachel. They were barren. It wasn't simply they couldn't have children, but the weight of that culture says if you have lots of children, you're blessed. 
If you have lots of children, you have meaning. You have purpose. You're successful. Every generation points to something and says, if I can gain that, if I can gain those things, if I can attain those things, we're somebody. Then I'm valuable. Then I understand I have personhood. Traditional cultures is about family. It's about gathering the family together. It's about having good kids. It's about coming together and, 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 and having successful, a successful family. Then you know you're somebody. Remember, sin is not just breaking the law of God. Sin is making good things the ultimate thing. When family becomes the ultimate thing, it takes the place of God. Individualistic cultures, more and more we're seeing that today, where what it's about is my own portfolio, my own uh, job, my own financial success, my, uh, my to, to attain a, a great job, have a good career, then I feel that I have made it, trying to justify. All of those are achievement-based, performance-based justifiers. Everyone is building their identity on something. Self-esteem, self-worth on something or someone else, whether it's through good things like kids and family or, or, or through power or approval, through their looks, even the causes that they, that they fight for. Everyone looks at something other than God to be the real thing that justifies you, that makes you feel important, that, that forgives you, that means you have meaning in your life. Your functional savior becomes idolatry. Your self-justifier becomes something other than God. And, and, and I, the reason that is so is that because we know deep in our hearts that, that there is sin in our life, that we cannot come into the presence of God. We know that we are guilty. We know there's something not right. We know there is shame and there is sin. And rather than come and receive grace, we work at it, covering our sin, covering our shame with our own self-efforts, our own self-justifying efforts, trying to erase the guilt, trying to get rid of the sin. Reminds me of the play by Shakespeare, Lady Macbeth. The plot centers on their the intense desire for ambition and power and they're willing to do whatever it takes to get that power, to feel like we're somebody. And then in Act 5, Scene 1, we find Lady Macbeth sleepwalking through the castle, hallucinating and rubbing her hands together as she's trying to wash them. What's she saying? Out, damn spot, out. She's talking about the imaginary blood on her hands from the murders and the crimes that her and her husband committed. She couldn't get rid of it. She couldn't get rid of the guilt. Couldn't get rid of the sin. And the emptiness and the sense of value and significance will not come until we recognize we've sinned against God and we're trying to justify our existence in some other way other than through our relationship and communion with God. Isaiah said it this way. All we, like sheep, right? Not the smartest animal in the world, have gone astray. There we go. We have turned. Means turned our back on God. We have turned. Everyone, nobody's excluded. You're welcome. To his own way. Doing our own thing. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Man substitute. Well, let me tell you about Israel's sacrificial substitution. In ancient Israel, first let me remind you that you, the, the point of the sacrifice and, and many of the, of the points of, of the sacrifice of the Old Testament was that you can't just walk into the presence of God any old way. 
The main reason worshipers came and sacrificed was not out of a heart of gratitude, although there were some thank offerings in the Old Testament. But in the Old Testament, you have the sacrificial system found in Leviticus. Most of the sacrifices, the, the, the worshipers would come not out of gratitude, but out of humility. There was brokenness. There was, you know, repentance. There was, the, there was guilt. There was sin. And they would bring their offering. And the sacrifices were voluntary. You can read all this about it, this in Leviticus. They were voluntary. They were costly. The sacrifices uh, had to be the, the, the worshiper's own. It had to be something that they would bring. There was usually accompanied by confession of sin. And it was done by the way God has described and gave the law to Moses to his people. Now there were five sacrifices mainly. One of them was a grain, but there was four of them that were animal sacrificed in the Old Testament. You're going to learn about that today. You're welcome. Let me, let me just tell you a little bit about it. You can find that in Leviticus. I'm not going to get into detail. I just want to give you a couple of things so we can get on. Because sin separates. God loves. And then God says to Israel, you've broken my covenant. You violated me. You have, you have sinned against me. And, but I love you. So I'm going to give you the atonement. I'm going to give you sacrificial system so that we can have relationship again. Okay? So he said, that's what we're going to do. So the worshiper would come and bring an animal. Uh, he, was, he, was part, he was part of the worship, but it was given to the priest in those days, the Old Testament priest, who alone had the exclusive right to the sacrificial altar. But the worshiper would come. And there was a thing called a burnt offering. It would be a flock, maybe a, a bull or a sheep or a goat. A dove, a pigeon, um, the sacrifice, just like it says, burnt offering, the whole animal would be burnt on the altar fire. It was the most extravagant, it was the most costly sacrifice. The entire animal was taken up in the flame. Second, there was a called a peace offering. Again, from the herd or a flock. The insides of the animal were, were burned into fire, and then the, the animal was, was divided up and it was eaten by the offerer and the priest. It would be shared. It was the peace offering. It was a way to say, we're okay now, Lord. We have communion with one another. We have communion with God. Third is what's called a sin offering. The sacrificial offering dealt with all kinds of, of sin in their life. And the relationship between God and man was broken. There was sin. And this type of offering depended on the identity and the status of the one doing the offering. So in other words, the chief priest brought a bull other Israelites would just bring a goat or a lamb, less money. The poor were allowed to bring other, like birds. And if you were really, 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 really poor, you could bring grain or flour. But it depends on where you were. Again, the insides were burned, and the offering was offered up to God and separated and split up between the priest and the, the one who brought the offering. But, but, it, but it, was, it was the idea that the worshiper can receive forgiveness for their sin. It was, it was to deal with the degree of sin in their life. And finally, the fourth offering is what's called a guilt offering. Guilt offering had to do with breaking the, 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 the um, clean and unclean laws. Again, it was, it was a sin offering because they had violated God's law. And they would bring the animal and they would, and they would sacrifice. Now, there are different actions that were done for each one. I'm not going to get into it. And there were different ways in which the blood of the animal had to be dealt with. I'm not going to get into that. Sometimes they, it's sprinkled on the altar. Sometimes the side of the altar. Sometimes on the curtain. There were different prescribed ways you could read it in Leviticus. But it was a reminder to all of Israel that God requires a sacrifice before you can enter into his presence. These 
sacrifices were primarily had to do with sin. There was blood and violence, and it points to the reality that our sin, our penalty for sin, what we deserve because of sin is death. For the wages of sin is death. That's what Paul says. We looked at a very important verse last week, and if you have not written it down in your Bible, you need to, because it, it helps us understand the purpose and the meaning of the atonement. It's in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. It says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. Okay, there's the law that God has given to Israel. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it for you. I've given you the life of the flesh and the blood. I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement, reconcile relationship for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Here we see we can't go any way we want into the presence of God, but by grace, he gives us sacrifices he he says we have the blood because life is in the blood right try living without blood you won't get very far the blood atonement or the blood makes atonement not only because of the life it represents but because it gets killed there's death in place of the life sin by its very nature threatens life Because it's treason against the author of life. And the Bible is clear. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And I know some of you think, and we mentioned this last week, that it's animal cruelty. I said last week that some of you feel that way will have a hamburger today. But let, let me say this today. God was more concerned, is more concerned, for his holiness and his glory to be displayed than he is about animal sacrifice. That's the way it was. That's the way it is. He is more concerned that they understand that they teach, that he was teaching the Imago Dei, those who created in the image and likeness of God, to teach them that they are sinful and he is holy. If it's shocking to think of all that sacrifice, it should, because sin doesn't, horrify us anymore and God's making it so that it is shocking to us it is grotesque to us to say that's what your sin is to me because of my holiness first thing they would do in these sacrifices they would pick an unblemished animal it was costly it symbolizes sinless perfection then they would bring it to the temple priest they would bring their sacrifice the animal they, 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 the priest would take it, the worshiper would take, would put his hands on the goat, or, or, or what, that, that which he was offering, that sin offering. And he would literally lay his hands on the goat as a substitute, and then he was um, uh, ready to, to confess his sins onto that goat. He would put his hands on it, and he would start confessing his sins. For me, it would be a long time, but he just kept confessing his sins. And after that, confession of that sins symbolizing the guilt the sin onto that animal that's why he laid his hands on him after it was done they would they would take the animal they would cut his throat blood would gush out i know some of you are hungry and the animal would would twitch and it would die and it would it would just bleed out you would know you would know for sure when you walked away from that scene you would know that your sin Cause death and bloodshed and suffering and pain. You would walk away and sense and feel the, the weight of sin in those days. In that temple with that blood flowing. 
knowing that what that animal just got, you deserved because of your sin. We deserve to die for our sins. We deserve to pay the righteousness of God through our suffering. And these sacrifices were happening over and over and over again, day after day, week after week, blood flowing from the temple. And the reason was because there was no perfect sacrifice in the Old Testament economy. They would continually offer up these sacrifices saying, my guilt, my sin, substituted by this animal, throat was cut, that's how wicked my sin is. You know what? It was a constant reminder, reminder of the state of sin they were in. But you know what's so ironic about the Old Testament sacrificial system? The most appropriate sacrifices in those days, and we're going we're to talk about this in another day, but let me just say this. One of the most appropriate sacrifices are the ones done when the offerer and the worshiper really knew deep in his heart that it wasn't enough. That it really did not make him right with God. It did not do everything that needed to be done. They had to keep going back. They had to keep sacrificing in the Old Testament economy. Now again, I said this last week. I'll say it again. This is not Greek mythology. This is not blood worshiping kind of a, a God who is just angry and bitter and come and throw your virgin over the pool, you know, over the, over the volcano. Right? Oh, I just want to appease this God because I want to have a good crop. That's not the Old Testament that is not the God of the Bible. That's not the God of creation. What you have here is, is a, an opportunity for God to take and to show us that we've offended him. He has given us ways that we can come to his presence. This is a living God, a personal God who, who has spoken, has provided a way of reconciliation with himself. God has spoken and said, this is what you need to do. He takes the initiative. He speaks. He wants to have relationship with us. That's the sacrificial system. But there was one sacrifice that I want to turn to. And if you've got your Bibles open, Leviticus chapter 16. There's one specific day, there's one specific sacrifice, there's one specific work of the Israelites that I want to talk about before we move on, and that is Yom Kippur. Yom Day Kippur Atonement. The Day of Atonement. I think I have some verses up there. Leviticus chapter 16, the Day of Atonement. That was the day when the high priest, you can read about it later in chapter 16, it's a great chapter, that was the day that the high priest would enter into the temple. He would enter into the center of the temple, what is called the most holy place or the holy of holies. It was the she- place where the Shekinah glory, the panim, the face of God was. His Shekinah glory cloud would come down in the center of the temple in the holy of holies. Okay? The temple was built... Uh, it had separate locations. It had, it had the outer court, the inner court, the priestly court, the uh, holy of holies. Even the way the whole temple was set up, I'll bring you a picture next time we deal with this. Uh, the temple was set up, showed that you just can't walk into the presence of God. He was deep in the temple. Saying, you just can't come into my presence. I'm holy, you're sinful. It will not go well. Anybody see Raiders of the Lost Ark when they broke open the covenant at the end and they were all just melted? That's what would happen. You're right? It wouldn't go well. So even the, even the temple itself says you can't come haphazardly into my presence. There was the outer court, there was the inner court. But in the middle of the temple was the Holy Holies. It was the place where the high priest would go. In the Holy of Holies, the very center of the temple, there was a curtain blocking it. The high priest could only go into that temple once a year. 
the temple curtain was like six inches thick. It was almost like a wall. You didn't even want to get a glimpse in that place. It, it, was, the, it, it, was, it was blocked from the rest of the, of the temple. And the priest on that day, if you go to chapter 16, verse 6, before he could enter into that day in the Day of, day of Atonement, he had to wash himself. He had to put on white clothing and special clothing to show purity and cleansing, to show cleansing. In chapter 16, verse 6, it says that Aaron had to take his own goat, his own bull, and offer it as a sin atonement, an offering for himself and his house before he could even deal with the nation. Because that's what the Day of Atonement was about, dealing with the sin of the nation. Then in verse 7, he says, once you do that, then he shall take, the high priest, the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meetings. And Aaron shall cast lots, he's the high priest, over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for Azazel. Azazel, it, it means scapegoat. And Aaron should present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord, use it for a sin offering, so two lots, and the other goat that fell for the scapegoat shall be presented alive to make atonement over it, and be sent away into the wilderness. Let me break that down for you. Two goats without blemish. One, blood was shed, brought into the Holy of Holies. He would slaughter the innocent goat, and it acted as a substitute. It was the place where they were supposed to be, to die for their sins. And he would, you know, bleed out this this animal and sprinkle it over the Ark of the Covenant. Okay? Don't lose me. Holy of Holies... High priest, blood of an animal for atonement. Inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. Remember the Ark of the Covenant? We saw it on Raiders of the Lost Ark. On top of the Ark of the Covenant was a lid. On top of the lid was two golden cherubims. Cherubims represent the glory of God. On that lid, some people call it a mercy seat. It's really not a seat. It's a lid. Underneath the lid, in the Ark of the Covenant, was the Ten Commandments. On the lid, there was a lid, two golden cherubims. Okay, you following me? Inside the covenant, inside the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments. They knew, Israel knew that those Ten Commandments, they had violated, they had broken God's moral law. They're sinners just like us. The animal sacrifice on top of the cover interposed blood between the guilty and God. The glory of God over the cherubim. So blood was brought in, spread on this atonement cover, place of propitiation, mercy seat. Blood was interposed between a righteous God who must judge sin and the blood of the animals. He would then be satisfied because he looked down at the broken law through the blood of the atonement. God's wrath was appeased and he was satisfied. It satisfied the demands of his holiness. And on the basis of that sacrifice, he could deal year to year with grace toward them. Okay, now on that day of atonement, they would take another animal alive. They would they would confess their sins over it and then they would send it out of the camp to say that our sins would be no more. The expiation of God, the cleansing of God, the sending away of our sins. Called a scapegoat and he would run into the wilderness, symboling symbolically taking away our sins. When the priest laid hands on the goat, it represented you and me if you were back in that day, right? It had to be without blemish because why? We were blemished. It had to be, it was symbolic for the guilt. There had to be an exchange. His blood for yours. Your guilt 
passed on to him. He became the substitute. That happened every year on the Day of Atonement. Your imperfections became his imperfection. Right? The goat's perfection becomes your perfection. It was, it was a change. It was an exchange going on. There was a substitute. And the satisfaction would take place because that goat, that animal, was substituted for you and for the sins of the people. Which brings us to our third point. Isaiah 53. Now listen. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He, Jesus, was pierced, crucified for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He took our place. Upon him, not us, was the chastisement that brought us peace, substitution. By his wounds we are healed. We elect sheep gone astray, turned every one to his own way, and the Lord laid on us, Our own iniquity? No, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let me tell you how forgiveness works, even on a human level. If someone hurts you, if someone wrongs you, if someone violates you, someone really had done something against you, there's always a debt that needs to be paid, right? Even on an economic level, if you get robbed, someone steals your money. Two things can happen. Either you find out who it is and they pay you back and a debt has been fulfilled or... You absorb the debt. Right? You could say, I forgive you, and I'll eat the money you stole, or you pay me back. But there is a debt. And when you forgive, especially if you've been harmed, deeply harmed, there's always suffering. Isn't there always suffering? There's pain, there's anguish. As you work through forgiveness, as you release that person from the harm and the pain, They've caused. Because you're absorbing the debt. Forgiveness is always, listen family, forgiveness is always substitutionary. The debt doesn't go into thin air. There is suffering, there is sacrificing, there's absorbing the debt. That's on a human level. How much more of our God? How much more of the cosmic creator God, the personal God that we just sin against? We sin against his own creation. We sin against each other. We sin against him. We do it with word, deed, and motive. God cannot and will not just say, you're justified. Unless there's a way that sin can be forgiven and we can have access into his throne again, into communion with him, into relationship with him again. Now watch this. In the gospel according to Mark, let me see if I have it up. In the gospel according to Mark, now, now, now follow me, we're almost over, a couple more minutes, follow me here. We just talked about the, uh, our own self-substitution, we talked about Israel's substitution, uh, a sacrifice in the a Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and the inner court. Now listen, the Bible says in Mark's gospel that when Jesus cried, he uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Luke says, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then, verse 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Right? Not bottom to top, not side to side. That huge thick curtain in the midst of his death ripped and torn from the top where God is straight down. Can you imagine being the priest? Temples, you're, you're sacrificing that big curtain. All of a sudden you look back and shoo, rip right open. Soiled pants, I'm sure. 
That was clear, perfectly clear, signifying it was God who tore it. It was unmistakable, unmistakable, without a question indicating that the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ on the cross has now allowed us into panim, into the face of God, into the presence of God, into relationship and communion with God. It was made available to all people. The barrier is near gone, near, now gone. Anyone can connect to God. Anyone can commune with God. You don't have to be the morally cleansed priest anymore. Everyone and anyone can enter into the present. No more day of atonement. No more high priest. No more priest. No more sacrifices. No more barriers. That's what that meant. And you can imagine the sight. And you know what else is really cool about that? Do I have it up there, verse 39? Yeah, look what it says. The last verse there. It says, the centurion, he's the guy in charge of crucifying Christ, who stood facing him, who was he facing? Jesus, saw that it was his, that he breathed his last and said, truly this man is or was the son of God. Now the centurion had coins. You know what the coin used to say on it? Caesar, son of God. Now all of a sudden the centurion is saying, oh my, the son of God. Mark's saying, look, He's not a Jew, and he's the first one to enter into the Holy of Holies. He's the first one to recognize that Jesus Christ has made the way for us. The centurion, think about this. The centurion heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, while they drill the spikes into his hand. The centurion heard him say, You will be with me in paradise. The centurion heard him say, Dear woman, your son. The centurion heard him say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The centurion heard him say, I am thirsty. The centurion heard him say, it is finished. The centurion heard him say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus said, I lay down my life, I take it up again, I have that authority. He gives up his spirit. And the centurion's like, he is the Son of God. You see, if, if you and I see all that Jesus did for us as your substitute, dying in your death, died the death you should have died, the, the darkness that he received for you, the separation, your heart would be tender toward Christ. It's not just intellectual assent. It is existential. It's heart-moving reality of all that Jesus did. Now, the centurion seen thousands of people be crucified. What's the difference? He saw the way Jesus was crucified. He saw what Jesus did. And said, you are the son of God. Here Jesus is dying to death. We should have died, but we won't. He lived a life we should have lived, but can't. So to save sinners, listen, God had to come to us and deal with our stupid methods of substituting God for false gods. And he does so by becoming human Dying in our place to atone for our sin. John Stott wrote this. The concept of substitution may be said to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which, alone, which belong alone to man. 
Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. End quote. The substitutionary work of Christ show the beauty of what he has done. Now the reality of that today, I want to show you just a short clip, and then we'll come up and we'll close in prayer. In the movie In the Line of Fire, Clint Eastwood plays a secret service agent, secret service agent, watching over the president. Watch this clip. That was a noble deed. But you know what really is a noble deed? When the commander-in-chief puts his body in front of ours on the cross and absorbs in himself our sins, our punishment, in order to give us life. To be a Christian does not mean to try harder or to work toward receiving God's love. Like the priest, we need to lay our hands on Jesus. Your blemishes become his. His righteousness becomes yours. What exactly what happens on the cross? Jesus gets what your sins deserve. And gives us his righteousness. The veil of your heart can be ripped from top to bottom. The sin that separates us from a holy loving God. Can be removed by personal faith and trust. In all the work of Christ on the cross. See his tenderness towards you. Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace. Was upon him. And by his wounds. We are healed. As the band comes up. I want to read one more verse to you. On the Day of Atonement, the New Testament writer in Hebrews in the New Testament says this. And I hope you have a better appreciation for this verse. 
Hebrews chapter 9 and chapter 10 speak all about the work of Christ. I want to encourage you to read that. But listen to what they say about Jesus. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands of this creation, Jesus entered once for all into the holy of holies, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Therefore, Jesus is a mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. For Christ has entered, Christ has entered into the presence of God on our behalf. It was not to offer himself repeatedly like the high priest every year in the Holy of Holies, but with his own blood. For then he would have to offer The priest would offer repeatedly, but not Jesus. Once and for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Family. Jesus is our substitute. Jesus dies in our place. Jesus bears the Father's wrath and pays the penalty for our sin. And three days later, rises victorious over death, sin, and hell, promising life to all those who trust him. And then, if you remember, Jesus says what on the, on the Passover? This is the new covenant in my blood. He has the cup that says this is my blood that was poured. He has the bread that says this is my body that was broken. This is the new covenant, he says. This is a new way of relationship. I paid the price. I fulfilled all the sacrificial system. I am the day of atonement. Come to me. Come to me and have life. Come to me and have forgiveness of sins. So the band's going to play. We're going to just sit at our seat for a minute or so, confessing our sins, repenting of our sins, being turned, and then we're going to come and we're going to celebrate. When you're ready, come and take the bread. Come and take the cup. This table is not just for King's Chapel. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you love Jesus, you trusted him for your sins, you trust that he died and rose for you, it's for you here. If not, if you're not at that place, that's fine. Just sit back, pray, enjoy the music. We'd love to talk with you some more. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Christ, our substitute, who took, who went before us and took the bullet, took the, 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 the deserved penalty of our sins upon himself. God coming down as a human without sin, dying in our place, securing us in eternal salvation. Father, we pray as these weeks are Uh, coming upon us as we celebrate the Passion Week. We celebrate the resurrection. Lord, let us be so quick to point people to Jesus, to tell them about his love for them, his great sacrifice for them, we pray. And Father, bless our response as well. May your spirit fill us and draw us to the Savior, we pray. In Jesus' good name, amen.